Blog Talk Radio. Radio Show's Thursday broadcast of the Reba Radio Hour, brought to you by the Eastern Airlines Radio Show and the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. We share the stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Midgaran Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern Captain and producer of the show. We hope you will enjoy these stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time. And you will join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now, let's get the show in the air. Reaper 31, you're clear to start engines. Hey, Reaper 31, you're cleared for takeoff. Roger, Reaper 31, uh, on the roll and requesting a straight out. That's approved, Reaper 31. Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings 
welcome back to another exciting Reaper Radio Hour. Our stories range from the male wings to the huge Lockheed Elk Linlevin TriStar, affectionately known as the Whisperliner. By the way, Eastern Airlines was the first to fly this three-engine Rolls-Royce-powered wide-bodied aircraft, which you just heard taking off. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash capeddy at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and just click on the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that the show has not begun. Better yet, why not do as many listeners do? Just call into the show at 213-816-1611. This will put you on the producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join in the discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone, and then you can just join in on the fun. As we previously mentioned in our Reaper Radio Hour shows, we have added a new announcement to our broadcast each Thursday. When we are given the names of our deceased pilots or their, or their spouses, and their passage to the West on their final flight, we will pay honor to these men and women who once flew the skies of this great airline. Uh, Captain Neal, do you have any names that you can uh, give us this week that have passed away? No, but the gentleman that uh, takes care of that for the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, Captain uh, Jim Holder, is with us today, and Jim, you've been doing this for a number of years, haven't you? About 20 or so. My son gave me a computer, and I had to learn how to do it, so I was able to put the word out. Yeah, and how do they come to you, Jim? How do you how do you get the name wide, of these uh, pe- wives? Wide, wide variety of ways. Uh, some I actually get in the Atlanta paper. You know, Atlanta's a real big base for Eastern. Yeah. Uh, there's two or three other guys and gals that uh, will send me. Paul Kelly is a good one that knows a lot of people, and they pass away. He's a former chief pilot in Atlanta. Uh, they just come from a wide variety of sources. Uh, well, you know, we've been on the air for 10 years now, and I wish we'd have started this off at the very beginning and uh, given the names of uh, those that have passed away. Uh, on the REPA rep website, REPAonline.com, uh, you have all of the ones that date all the way back to the 20s appearing there. That's correct. That's yeah, correct. So. In the In Memoriam page or section yeah. of the REPA website, www.REPAonline.com. Wonderful that REPA has uh, maintained that over the years. So great. And uh, you'll keep furnishing those to us, and we'll we'll pay respect uh, as we receive them. Thanks so much for doing that, Jim, for, for the radio show. Back to You're you, Don. Okay, well, thank you, guys. And as we said uh, in our previous shows, we will make available this time on the radio show whenever we have an announcement. Now, let's go up to Long Island, New York, 
Captain Mike Scott is at the controls. Mike? Yeah, thanks, Don. Today we have four stories our producer has selected from the pages of Reaper T. Incidentally, if you if you wonder where our producer finds all these great stories, here's his secret, right on the radio show's website. And that's right, our webmaster has put a, a link uh, to the Reaper uh, website, uh, reaperonline.com, where Captain Jerry Frost did a remarkable job of installing 49 years of Reaper T, Reaper T issues. Uh, you can also find the link on the www.elradioshow.com. Harry, do we have some starting uh, stories for our pilot stories today? Well, Captain Mike, I'm told by some of our old-timers that when most of the scheduled airlines were not flying because of weather minimums, needing to maneuver the aircraft for a landing due to low ceilings or poor visibility, they made do with what they were given by the tower or created their own report. Well, let's let Captain Tom Bartley tell you the story. Mr. Producer? Here's one sent in by Thomas Bartley to repartee in the 1982 issue. It's been a while since I've written anything for the Nostalgia Corner. Here's another trip down memory lane for your consideration. Best wishes, Tom Bartley. The title, Special Weather Observations. As I have mentioned previously in the Nostalgia Corner, I was introduced to the ceiling jack very early in my co-pilot career with EAL by the rugged old-time captains that I flew with. The ceiling jack was a special weather observation purportedly to take advantage of any possible temporary improvement in the weather when it was reported below limits. Obviously, the reported improvement, if any, would not usually be great. Even the most cooperative weather observers still had to stay inside the, the ballpark. Yet, nevertheless, once in a while, some way, somehow, the elastic limits did get pretty well stretched. Steve Parkinson told me about one such occurrence in which he was involved one night at Philadelphia. Since Steve isn't here to help us out with the details, the best I can do is to give a rundown of the high spots from memory as recounted to me by Steve. The weather was stinko-stinko. In other words, nobody was flying but Eastern. Steve told me that he could just barely see the tax to taxi out. On reaching takeoff position, his conversation with the tower went something like this. Ready for takeoff. How many runway lights can you see, Eastern? Only a few. Wait a minute. I'll turn them up to high intensity. How many can you see now? Oh, we can, we can see fine now. Uh, that's funny. I just turned them off. <laughs> Go ahead, Eastern. No further comment from this corner. Another occasion involving takeoff weather in which I was personally involved occurred one morning at Newark Airport. Back in 1949 or maybe 1950, we had four Super C constellations lined up for takeoff. I was in number three, and the weather was reported below limits. 
The visibility was ample for a safe takeoff roll, but the ceiling was indefinite. Somebody asked for a special weather observation. The report came out 200 and a half, which was minimum for takeoff, both takeoff and landing. The number one constellation prop promptly took off, followed immediately by number two. But we also had a flight holding overhead for weather improvement. The captain was Johnny Hall. As soon as he heard 200 and a half, he requested and received a landing clearance. Meanwhile, the number three constellation, my trip, took off. Johnny Hall called me to ask, what's it like down there? I gave him a double talk message between the lines that it would be a tight approach. We left a receiver on tower frequencies to see how he made out. We heard the tower operator say, let us know if you miss. Back came the reply. We're taxiing in now. The operator must have decided this was a little too much of a good thing. He put out another special and closed the airport before our number four constellation could get out. This occurrence highlights a couple of points which, in my opinion, deserve to be mentioned. One, we never should have had the same minimums for landing as for takeoff, at least not in four-engine aircraft. Later, when we had 200 and a quarter for takeoff with 200 and a half for landing, it was a more practical operation. And two, ironically, Johnny Hall told me afterward that the approach wasn't really all that tight. Evidently, he could see more looking down at the high-intensity lights than a ground observer could see, looking up at nothing. This is admittedly a consideration in favor of the controversial take-a-look rule, which I personally never did favor and very rarely used. Without a doubt, the most hilarious experience I ever had with a special weather observation was one in which the weather wasn't tight at all. And I didn't even ask for a special, but our radio operator thought I did and got one for me. It happened at Houston one night in the 1950s on Flight 507, a constellation from New York to San Antonio with a Houston stop. The ceiling at Houston was 300 feet, which was below circling minimums and also below minimums for back course ILS. The visibility was about halfway across the state of Texas, and the wind was wrong for a straight-in landing, reported 15 miles per hour out of the southwest, would be downwind on the ILS. I advised Houston that we would overfly and land at San Antonio and hung up the mic. Then I had an afterthought. Uh, let us know if the wind dies down to six miles an hour or less, I said. If it does, we can come in there. I hung up the mic again with no idea at all of landing at Houston, but moments later, out of the headphones came a blast. Hey, I've got, yeah, I've got you six miles. No call-up, no identification, no nothing. Just, I've got you six miles. So unintentionally, but very willingly, I was caught in my own trap. On final approach, the tower operator gave the current weather, ceiling 300 visibility, more than 10 miles, wind southwest, and blah, 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 blah. It was the most beautiful garble I ever heard in my life. 
we dumped it in and short on the end of the runway and rolled to an easy stop. The next time I saw Ed Ward, our Houston station manager, I had a laugh and a friend, friendly chat with him about his this incident. I also suggested that maybe he might wish to explain to Ruthie, our radio operator, about the correct radio phraseology. But on second thought, maybe it was better the way she handled it. I wouldn't even attempt to guess how many times I was a beneficiary of a special weather observation during my entire time with Eastern, but it would be a good number. And so far as I can remember, I was never penalized by special observation, except once. This must have been in about 1947 or 1948. I was flying a DC-4 trip about to depart Boston for somewhere, don't remember now, just ready to take off, when out came a special which closed the airport down. The weather was low, all right. In fact, everybody but Eastern was already canceled. But it was plenty okay for takeoff, and we would have gone in about 30 more seconds. I will never believe that the tower operator shut the gate in our faces on his own initiative. He could have waited a few seconds. It wasn't a regular sequence. It was a special. I will always believe that special observation was requested by Brand X operation at Boston, who are widely reputed to believe that they owned that territory and all the rest of us were intruders. Just goes to show you can never win them all. But we won our share. We sure did. You know, it's just uh, incredible. I think I remember my first trip uh, into weather conditions. I mean, really tight weather conditions was in a Convair, brand new co-pilot sitting beside Harold Egan. I'll never forget him. I don't know if you remember him or not, Jim Jim Holder. No, I don't. And Harold Harold was uh, left seat. I think he had just gotten in left seat, but I had just gotten in the right seat as a new new co-pilot. And we were landing at uh, Reading, Pennsylvania. And um, he says, now it's going to be tight. And uh, Allegheny, I think it was at that time, had already canceled uh, his approach, and he had gone off to his alternate. And uh, the tower said, uh, well, Eastern, what are you going to do? And, he, and Harold said, tell him we're coming in. So uh, he told me after we we didn't we had an IF had to have the IFR of course to make that approach but at any rate he told me all fair he said now look he said you stay outside glued outside he says if you see a red barn I've told this story before you probably heard it Jim if you see a red barn let me know and so here I, my eyes were really wide awake. And we were coming in, I said, oh, my God, I hope we don't hit that barn. And down we go, down we go. And sure enough, I saw a barn. Don't know what color it was. I said, I got it in sight. And he looked up, and he knew where he was, and there was a runway right after that. It was incredible. I thought to myself, oh, my God, is this what we're going to do for the rest of my life, make approaches like this? (laughs) Oh. 
Exactly. I mean, I we used to get all these. Uh, I got initiated with going into Heathrow all the time. I don't, I think we went into Heathrow about about a half a dozen times before I ever saw what the airport looked like from the air. <laughs> <laughs> it was always a, a, a minimum's approach going in there. And the takeoffs, yeah. we could do, uh, we were uh, under Part 91, we could do zero-zero takeoffs. But they stopped that now, of course. But uh, yeah. back in the old days, you, you could do that. Yeah. Well, you know, but anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead, Jim. Uh I may have told this story before, but I, the one I remember when we talk about this kind of stuff happened at Denver, and I'd flown this uh, uh, 727 from Atlanta, and we made a Cat 2 in Atlanta coming back through from wherever we went that earlier that day, and then we took off from Atlanta to Denver. And it was a full airplane. It was one of those Z models. Remember them? They had the Z at the end of the number, yeah, the end yeah. number. And yeah. they had everything. They had auto land, auto this, auto that, auto coffee coming up for you. You just made it. They had it. And it was a fine airplane. And uh, and we and we got there, and there was nobody there. At Denver was below minimums big time. They were down around a thousand to eleven hundred to RVR, which is pretty. You can't see very much. Zero ceiling. Yeah. And uh, the whole kit and caboodle. So we entered a holding pattern. And we had a whole bunch of winter time. We had a whole bunch of skiers back there that were ready to hit the mountains. And this was at night now, about ten o'clock at night. And we hailed and hailed, and, and the Grand Junction was an alternate. And we watching the fuel gauges going down, and we circled at the marker or outside the marker. And finally, I told the co-pilot to tell them we got to go to Grand Junction. I said we're getting down, you know, pretty low on fuel. And, I, and Grand Junction had fairly good weather. It wasn't a problem getting there, but we had to have enough fuel to get there, and that's what we were concerned about. And so we started, you know, climbing back out. We'd gone about 10 miles maybe, and they said, uh, Eastern, the uh, RVR just came up to 1,200. What are your plans? And I said, oh, my God, you know, what am I going to do? I said, okay, we're going to shoot a quick approach. We're going to turn in real quick. We're going to come in, and we, if we don't make it, we are hauling butt for Grand Junction. They said, okay. And I don't know if it changed or not. You know, you just wonder, did he really see 1,200? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so now <laughs> we're coming down, and it had auto land, and, of course, it was a, uh automatic pilot. It was, I mean, autopilot was making the approach, and I'm just sitting there watching everything. And, you know, we had to call out the 500 feet. The flight engineer sticks his five fingers up to tell you you got all the five lights at 500 feet and we had lights and of course nobody's saying a word there's not a word being said by anybody and we came on down and coming down and of course we went to 300 200 100 i said oh okay. all of a sudden i saw a couple of runway centerline lights and it had gone into auto flare you know it, it actually auto flared it was auto land and yeah. it went into auto flare and old dumbass me pulled the power off Man, we hit like a ton of bricks. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> Everything on the airplane shook, including my stuff. And we're going down the runway, and all I can see is about 10 lights in front of me. And yeah. I was able to keep the airplane lined up with those 10 lights. And, of course, I got in the back. All those skiers were screaming and laughing and carrying on, and they were happy, and I was embarrassed. But we had to get radar vectors to the gate, and we got to the gate, and you, we wow. couldn't even see the gate. Until we were about 200 feet from it, and they were radar vectors us into the gate, and that's that's 
easily the lowest approach landing that I've ever been involved in. Yeah. That's if, I'd not, if I'd just pull the power back a little bit, that thing would have just gone on so smooth as silk. But <laughs> at about 10 feet, I snatched the power off. <laughs> oh, well, well, think well, about it back that. in the days of the Convairs and the DCs and all that, you know, the old prop airplanes. And uh, anyhow, Mike, uh, did you ever have that happen to you? Well, we had a lot of going all over the world like we used to do. I mean, we I made some harrowing approaches in all the weather in the snow and, uh, you know, in the low visibilities and all of that stuff. And I had some good instructors that uh, that taught me how to do all of that stuff early on in my stages. So uh, it well, used to come about... in pretty handy, but we used to, because uh, we didn't get any uh, checkouts. I think I mentioned in yeah. prior shows that, the, you know, the airline guys, they used to see uh, – either tapes or slides of the airport and uh yeah. sometimes they would get route checked with another pilot that had been in there but with our operation and when we went uh, we went that was it no checkout you go yeah. and check yourself out <laughs> well, how about taking over the rest of the uh your part here and carrying us on down yeah okay anyway harry about these uh special weather observations with tom bartley says i think at one time or another i might have been guilty of that myself of course that was back in the day now i don't think that uh that would be possible but it probably is with all the uh, aircraft that today designed with the uh with the zero zero uh capabilities uh meaning no forward visibility or ceiling down to the ground, as it often happens at airports close to the oceans like LAX. Of course, they had that, uh, I think, uh, Neil, you mentioned one time about uh, landing uh, run the runway sixes or the sevens uh, out there in LAX. If you turned yeah. out over the water, when you were going yeah. out over the shoreline, you went into the black hole until you, yeah. you turned back around again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Harry? Well, guys, that sounds like some interesting experiences. I'm, I'm getting kind of nervous just sitting here. But uh, <laughs> anyway, some of the other equipment that came along, an inertial navigation system, or INS, is a navigation device that uses a computer. Motion sensors, called accelerometers, and rotation sensors, called gyroscopes, to continuously calculate by dead reckoning the position, the orientation, and the velocity, direction and speed of movement, of a moving object without the need for external references. Often the internal sense, inertial sensors are supplemented by a barometric altimeter and occasionally by magnetic sensors, magnetometers, and or speed measuring devices. INSs are used on mobile robots and on vehicles such as ships, aircraft, submarines, guided missiles, and spacecraft. Other terms used to refer to inertial navigation systems or closely related devices include inertial guidance system, inertial instrument, inertial measurement unit, or an IMU, and many other variations. Older INS systems generally use an inertial platform as their monitoring, as their mounting point to the vehicle, and the terms are sometimes considered synonymous. Now, here's how it really works. Here's one for you, pretty simple to follow. It was in the 1982 issue of Repartee. Inertial Navigation System Simplified. The following explanation in simplified terms is typical of all inertial navigation systems. First, the aircraft knows where it is at all times. It knows this because it knows where it isn't. 
by subtracting where it isn't from where it is or where it is from where it isn't, whichever is greater, it obtains a difference of deviation. The inertial system uses deviation to generate corrective commands to drive the system from a position where it is to a position where it isn't, arriving at the position where it isn't, it is now. Consequently, the position where it is is now the position where it wasn't, and it follows the position where it was to the position where it isn't. In the event the position where it is now is not the position where it wasn't, the system has acquired a variation. Now, variations are caused by external factors, and the discussion of these factors is not considered to be within the scope of this explanation. The variation being the difference between where the aircraft is and where the aircraft wasn't. If the variation is considered to be a significant factor, it too may be corrected by the Doppler system. However, the aircraft must know where it is or where it was also. The thought, the thought process of the system is as follows. Because a variation has modified some of the information which the aircraft has obtained, it is not sure where it is. However, it is sure where it isn't, within reason, and it knows where it was. It now subtracts where it should be from where it wasn't, or vice versa, and by differentiating this from the algebraic difference between the, its deviation and its variation, which is called error, it computes the correct information to compensate for all factors supplying accurate navigation information. Who said this stuff was so complicated? <laughs> now you know. Hey, guys. Hey, Don, before you before you do this, let me tell you, I did. I had to read that about five times to get through that. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Don. I'm sorry. Well, it caught my attention. If you guys need any further explanation about this system, I'm sure Captain Neil, Captain Mike, Captain uh, Jim would be happy. More than happy to take your call off the air. Oh, it goes boy. into detail, right, guys? Yeah, sure. Well, I got to tell you, the DC-863s that I flew had dual-line S's, and uh, we did it 99% of the time from Atlanta to L.A., and it found L.A. every time. Every time. Yeah. Every time. Well, it the, what? 757 you know, the, had the IRS system, which was the inertial right. reference system. And it was right. easy to understand that system. I don't think I could have ever gotten by the INS. <laughs> yeah, they, that's uh, the I, I got broken in on uh, flying uh, Litton 72s and 92s and uh, the oh. old Delco carousels, the fours and fives. They had nine yeah. waypoints to them. And, oh. you know, of course, those INS systems, they... Uh, they worked pretty good, except for all the precession. We could, uh, as long as you told it where it was, it would take you where to where you wanted to go. Yeah. But when we used to go where across the Atlantic. <laughs> we went across the Atlantic. It was not un, unusual after about six hours to have a uh, be six or eight miles off uh, on a uh, on a coast end. 
going to mm. London. And, yeah. and then later on, they came up with a uh, with a feature on the Carousel fours and fives to uh, to do a DME update, where you could put the uh, D- your uh, VOR stations with the DME. You could yeah. you could type those. You could do nine waypoints other than the other waypoints in a different mode. <laughs> and you put those VOR, the coordinates for the VORs in there. And when, when you, on the RMIs, when you were flying along left side and right side, you you pre-tune them when you started to coast in. And yeah. uh, when they when they got when you got in range to where they would pick it up and the needle would swing and start pointing, all of a sudden, you you didn't get any indication on the uh, on the uh, the units themselves. But what you, what used to happen, you could feel the autopilot. It, you could feel it make, starting to make its corrections to get it back on course because it was feeding the information into the INS and feeding the VORs to make it more accurate. So that's yeah. that, that sounds that sounds like what Neil just read. Yeah, I think it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. the way it worked. And of course, we used to uh, maybe you guys got involved with it. We had also uh, the old global navigation system, which was a VLF. And that was like we, you were required to have two INS systems to cross, but you had to have a third backup system. And usually wow. we use the global navs for a backup. So, well, but we anyway. Had, I, did you ever use Loran? I I had the Loran C. And then, of course, when you got in the 1011, you got Omega, uh, the Omega yeah. system. And, uh, and, then, and then the 75 came along with the IRS. And I said, man, this is getting too easy. <laughs> you know, but before that, I I could never under I could never find myself uh, with the uh, Loran charts. I don't know. I had a hard time with that. But anyhow, let's continue on. Don, go ahead. Well, uh, we'd like to go to our Reaper mailbag and read some letters from pilots who sent uh, them to for publication. So let's see what our producers found for one of our issues for today. Reaching into the mailbag of the 1982 issue of Repartee, I pull out this letter from Tack Marshall uh, from Toulouse, France. It reads, Dear Art, As governor of the Miami hangar of Quiet Birdman, I welcome you with open arms as a newcomer. It's been a long time since you and I flew the old airplanes at Shoshone Airport in New Orleans in mid-30s. I am now in my second year as an A300 flight simulator instructor in Toulouse, France. The job is part-time with each stint lasting about two months. So far, I've logged 240 days here. There are five of us EAL retirees doing this. Don Aubrey, Al Bevelick, Jack Connolly, Tom Crane, and myself. We came over at different times whenever there's a shortage of European instructors. The school is Aeroformation, jointly owned by Airbus Industries and Flight Safety. About 35 instructors are assigned and all the courses are taught in English. The students being airline pilots and flight engineers from all over the world. Most of the pilots are very hardworking and show up for the simulator position or portion of their checkout fully prepared. This makes it easy for us. So many airlines rate their pilots according to performance, like Singapore, and seniority is sometimes secondary. It's no wonder they work so hard. On the other hand, 
we have had inexperienced co-pilots and our who are excellent students when it comes to the knowledge of systems and procedures, but their handling of the flight controls leaves something to be desired. A typical first officer in this category comes to us with two or 300 hours and a Boeing 737 total airline experience. We've had a few 33-year-old captains, but this is rare. Most are in their 40s and 50s. We Eastern instructors are well received by the school because we have actual flying time behind us in the A300. Most of the simulator instructors here never have flown the Airbus. Our wives have accompanied us at times. Aeroformation supplies each instructor with an apartment in the suburbs or a hotel room, and we each have a car. I'm the only one who prefers to be in a downtown hotel with my car in the basement. There's more of interest in the middle of the city. And Toulouse being 450 miles south of Paris and 50 miles north of Spain is one of Europe's oldest and most interesting cities. I enjoy it thoroughly. The only drawback is the fact that I've spent two Christmases here. An airline pilot should be used to this, but... When I retired, I knew I'd be home for the holidays. Not so. Looking forward to seeing you and the others at the next Reaper Luncheon in Miami. Sincerely, Tack Marshall. Good letter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll continue on. That's from Don here. Uh I think I'm I'm on base here, aren't I? You Ain't sure I? are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after 1989, many of the pilots went to work for other companies. Many uh, flew the equipment that they'd been flying in Eastern Airlines with carriers like ATA, like Captain Jim, and uh, Saudi Arabian, and a, a ton of other ones, privately f- uh, for wealthy and people, like sheiks and barons and millionaires and billionaires and charter companies. And some uh, even went to be uh, simulator instructors, uh, like we uh, just heard about uh, Captain uh, Jack uh, Tack Marshall. I mean, uh, I know how that all works because, well, I I, I didn't uh, go out, of course, with Eastern because I wasn't flying with them. But I left Eastern in '78, and I ended up getting a job with uh, with the Kuwaitis that lasted for five years. This is these were all on seven twos and seven threes, mostly seven two. And then I went over to, if any of you remember, Pia Zadora. Uh, she was an actress-singer, and her husband owned the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And I flew with them for about seven years, and then I had three, uh, several, uh, three uh, contract jobs over flying for the Saudis uh, over mm-hmm. in the dust country. I had a t- total of nine years flying in the Middle East. And then I had two years flying the Forbes airplane, Malcolm Forbes. And then yeah. I did some part-time work for uh, the limited stores. You probably mm-hmm. all remember that. And then mm-hmm. last but not least, I did the finished up with 22 years at the flying the Getty people around in their airplane. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Holder, <laughs> how long How long between Eastern and the time you went with ATA, how long was it? It was about three years. Uh, I had no choice. I had a daughter that got very sick, and her mother and I were divorced, and she had a job, and I didn't, so I had to care for her. She passed away, and then after that, I figured I'd be flipping hamburgers. But somehow, I heard about ATA, and 
I sent him a letter, and a week later, I was in ground school. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Charlie Boswell helped a little bit <laughs> because he yeah. was a tech airman and 757 yeah. fleet manager up there at ATA. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they slid me right on in. Well, I had some uh, near n- near jobs. I did have the longest one was out in Hawaii. I was a, flight, a director of flight of Hawaii Pacific Airlines from Honolulu, and um, that seemed like uh, I had gone to heaven on that job. And um, lo and behold, they couldn't maintain the airplanes, and I quit and shut them down. But uh, had some interesting, uh, other interesting, flew for 135 charter. So we all had things to do after Eastern and kept us uh, in the air for a little while. So um, very good. Thanks for uh, some of some of your stories there. Back to you, Harry. All right, thank you, Captain Neil. Uh, some of the older guys managed to make it to retirement. That was before Eastern went out of business, of course. It's always interesting to hear stories about a captain's last flight before retirement. What's going on in his or her mind about the rest of their life? how the last flight will go, and will anyone even care as to that last flight? Well, our final reading today is about that last flight. Mr. Producer? Ever wonder what it's like for a captain on that last flight before retirement? Well, here's a story by Tom Bartley, Jr. on his last flight. It's titled, Last Landing at Mexico City. We were approaching Mexico City in a DC-8 on the night of January 1st, 1967. It was our second day out on a three-day trip, and it would be my last flight into Mexico City. I was 59 years and 363 days old. Next day, we would fly back to New York. After that, I would be too old to fly. In the first officer's seat inbound to Mexico was Jim Hoyt. The first and second officers were swapping seats, and each was doing some of the flying on the first and second days out. On the third day, nobody but the old man would touch the controls. Jim was due to make the landing at Mexico, said he, and uh, he turned to me and said uh, very earnestly, I've got 30 more years to make landings, Tom. I would sure like for you to make this one. I hadn't planned it that way, but Jim, I said, you are a gentleman and a scholar, and I'm a weak character. I give in. I adjusted my seat one notch forward, one notch up, and took over the controls. It was a smog-free kabu, that ceiling invisibility unlimited night, behind a coal front. We could see Mexico City lit up like a Christmas tree from 50 miles out. The DC-8 was coasting along easily, descending at reduced power, comfortable as an old shoe. I was savoring every delightful minute, wide awake and in a reverie at the same time. I didn't know that a stewardess had entered the cockpit until Ted Blastock in the second officer's seat said to me, Tom, would it be okay for Sin to ride through a landing up here? I had to think that one over for a moment. Rule bender though I was, I'd never seen been in favor of letting the little cuties ride up front on a landing to see what good pilots we were. But this was a special trip, and also a special crew. I was proud of them all. Then Ted came through with the clincher, 
This is her first trip to Mexico City. That did it. Show her how to fasten the safety belt on the jump seat, I said. We took a bead on runway 23 in the southwest to the southwest on a long, straight-in final and rolled it on. Just a shade on the fast side in the rarefied air at Mexico City elevation. When we shut off the engines at the gate, the young lady was exuberant. Captain, she said, that was so beautiful. I just can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. That's okay, sweetie, I said, trying to sound like a crusty old codger. Don't mention it to anyone until day after tomorrow. This little episode is just one of many long-lasting pleasant memories I have had of my last trip as a captain for Eastern Airlines. I do think it deserves to be mentioned in passing that at that time I was at the peak of my professional skill and competence, still passing good physicals and good flight checks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Brings to you mind your story when you, when you when you got the hose in a small airplane, Neil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My last landing, my last landing was a seven five seven from Costa Rica, and uh, and uh, I didn't know it was going to be my last landing, but it was. It turned out to be that way, and uh, but at any rate, uh, I was washed down with a garden hose <laughs> in a little Piper <laughs> airplane. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, good stories, good stories you get from that magazine. Yeah. Don, well, what you got to say? Yeah. Guys, uh, for our listeners, here's how you can read any of the nearly 50 years of this amazing magazine. Go to Reaper's website at www.reaperonline.com and click on the Reaper Reaper. Click on Repartee at the menu bar. Captain Jerry Frost, treasurer of REPA, has scanned every issue of the newsletters and magazines over the history of the organization. Just, just go through a few years and turn the pages to this one-of-a-kind Repartee newsletter, better known as Repartee. As mentioned earlier in the program, our webmaster, Dorothy Gagnon, has placed a link on the radio show website. So you can go there at www.ealradioshow.com. Back to you, Mr. Producer. And and Don, there you will find uh, on that that website, and uh, if you go in there and start looking at the earliest the very first newsletter all the way through jim holder's what 15 years of uh magazines jim and, uh, uh 19 i think 19 years and my four years which was a short period but we had many editors along the way and uh all really great guys and uh, uh i enjoy reading their stories and and telling them now it really is a lot of fun to do it was 17 you corrected me you're right 17 17, yeah anyhow that's a lot of that's a lot of magazines to turn out jim Mm -hmm. yeah good ones at that 
Yeah, well, thank you. We had, thank you. And Jim, I don't know, but uh, when I took over from Bill Malone, he told me, he said, Neil, he said, now we have some free magazines that we uh, we give out to special people, and here's a list of them. And I would hope that you would continue to send these to these people. Well, several of them were uh, editors from different airlines who had their own newsletter or magazine, and they were wanting ours just to see how we put it together, how Bill did it. And so I continued that and sent them out to, and I don't know if, Jim, you took over and you did the same. You probably sent out a lot of free magazines to those folks. That, uh, oh, Lord, yes. Yeah. United. Uh, yeah, Brandon. yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, a lot of people wanted to read our magazine. I sent them yeah. to Alpha. Yeah. Well, great show today, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, a lot of fun talking about the old days and uh, our days. <laughs> so I'm going to turn it back uh, over no, to Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I know uh, a lot of these things you've done on the uh, past shows, uh Captain Neal was from that news wing. Yeah. And yeah. I've fishing through all, all my archives here of things that I've been collecting this stuff forever. And I found uh, in an old box the uh, news wing here from, uh, I have, uh, you probably already have it, but I yeah. found uh, issue number one, two, and three, September 30, 1931, October 1931, and uh, I guess it's November 1931. <laughs> Well, wow. you know, Mike, uh, I have the I have the hardbound copy that uh, my late partner John Engel, who we've mentioned several times, and he contributed a lot of stories uh, and stuff to Repa. He was an affiliate member, and John gave me a bound book of every one of the Newswings from twenty seven oh, yeah. at Karen. From 1927 all the way through to 1933, which was their last issue, and huh. uh, and then it changed names, you know, when it was sold to uh, to uh, Eastern Air Transport or uh, Clement Keys bought the airline, and um, so I've got every one of them in a bound issue, and I enjoyed doing this in the earlier shows. I would go back and research Newswings. As a matter of fact. Last week, I took that first pilot that passed away from Eastern Airlines. Well, right, yeah. The parent company, uh, Pitcairn, the very first uh, fatality that uh, we had, and it was written up in the Newswing. So I read that in the last show. So lots of good stuff like that. And all the people yeah. like Eleanor Roosevelt, she loved to fly with Eastern. And, um, uh, uh, so many stories, good stories in there that uh, I might go back to it one of these days. Yeah. Great story. Yep. Well, uh, uh, Captain Neal, before we sign off, do you have anything coming up for Monday night? Well, yeah, we're going to do that. Uh, I, I think we're getting close to Veterans Day, aren't we? Anybody got a calendar? Yeah, Next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Yeah. Well, we timed it right because we're going to do the show uh, Monday night. It's going to be about the ladies that contributed so much to World War One, World War Two, and 
and the other wars that uh, came after Korea and uh, Vietnam. But uh, we're going to talk about that in our next show. So it's dedicated to the ladies in the military services, and I think you'll really enjoy it. And it was fun to research and good material, a lot of stuff that uh, I found extremely interesting. So that'll be our next show. That's okay. about all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to uh, take it out or? Yeah, let's 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 take it out of here. Well, I got to go what? to Publix and do some grocery shopping. <laughs> 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 well, we'll see you guys again next week, same time when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, as printed in the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association and other publications. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, it's www.ealradioshow.com. That's where you'll find many more Great Eastern stories and memories. It's time to say so long. So on behalf of all of our hosts, our producer, Captain Neil, this is Don Gagnon saying so long, Eastern. So long, Eastern family. We love you. Good day. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Good show, Neil. Enjoyed it. Take care. So long. See you guys Monday night. Shining in the sunlight, roaring engines, headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away.
in four minutes to happy hour. Okay, I'll be there, Mike. Save me a seat. <laughs>